So minerals aren't just used for everything that we're going to need to electrify. They're used in our everyday lives from, you know, the, the water glass and the coffee mug that you drink out of to the windows and of course our computers and our laptops everybody likes to talk about, but it really is everything. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by the smartest guy in the whole world on Canada-U.S. issues, maybe other issues too, Professor Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hi, Scotty. Nice to see you again. And you really have to stop inflating my head. I won't be able to get out of the door in the morning. (laughs) Well, you deserve all the accolades. And I'm happy to have a conversation today, Chris, because we're going to talk about critical minerals. Um, we're going to talk about the carbon transition, and we have um, we we have a real expert with us, and I'd love for you to introduce her properly. Oh, absolutely. I'm as excited as you are. Our guest today is Abigail Wolf. She's the director of the Ambassador Alfred Hoffman Jr. Center for Critical Mineral Strategy at an organization called Securing America's Future Energy. And I say it that way because like all good things in Washington, there's an acronym and the acronym is SAFE. Sort of reflecting that Securing America's Future Energy vibe, she brings a broad earth science experience to the center from researching rare earth and lithium pegmatites. I hope that's right. Uh, oh, excellent. Thank you. Getting a nod there. She's, she's, she's nodding. nodding. Yeah, that's uh, right. And has worked with NASA researchers to convey the connections between Earth's component systems. She previously served as the senior science communicator for research within NASA's Earth Science Division. And she has served as a policy manager for the American Geosciences Institute, a nonpartisan federation of more than 50 professional scientific societies. Now, While at AGI, that's the American Geosciences Institute, um, Abigail co-led the Minerals Science and Information Coalition, a broad-based alliance of organizations representing all stages of the critical mineral supply chain. So, Scotty, we found ourselves an expert, and it's great to have you here, Abigail Wolf. Thank you. I, I add my welcome to Chris's. Maybe you could start out, if you would, by just situating SAFE. What is it? And, and how did you get there? What I know, Chris, and you may know this, is SAFE, uh, the, the founder of it is actually a Canadian. He's in the U.S. now, Robbie Diamond, but mutual friend of all of ours. But anyway, Abby, tell us about SAFE, um, what it does, and then how you fit into the picture, if you don't mind. Uh, absolutely. Scotty, Chris, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Really happy to be here. Um, so SAFE is a nonpartisan, nonprofit thought leader organization based in Washington, D.C. They were originally started in the early 2000s in response to what our founder and CEO saw as critical national and economic security threats due to our over-reliance on oil and unreliable actors that controlled that oil. So, you know, OPEC plus cartel, uh, manipulating prices, uh, no matter how much we pumped, we still consumed more. So we were pushing for since that time, um, increased fuel economy standards, but also the general electrification of the transportation sector writ large to insulate ourselves from that oil dependency. 
so that that is safe. And then they they decided or not decided, they realized as they were pushing for this greater electrification that they might inadvertently be pushing us into other critical dependencies, this time not on uh, OPEC for oil, but instead on the Chinese Communist Party for the critical minerals and materials that we're going to need to electrify. So they yeah. stood up the center yeah. and here I am. Well, I love that's so helpful. And I love how Robbie Diamond, your finder, said your founder says it out of the you don't want to go out of the Saudi frying pan into the Beijing fire, right? I mean to so um so how about your role in particular? Talk to us about your work at SAFE and then and then Chris, I'll turn it over to you. So I am the the vice president and director for uh, critical mineral strategy at SAFE. Uh, I was brought on to really help make sure that as we transition, that everything from the mining, processing, component manufacturing, and recycling that we're going to need to electrify uh, supports our interests and values, um, also supports U.S. and allied foreign and military policy, and uh, frankly, helps to increase U.S. competitiveness in this space. So that sounds very U.S.-centric to me, Abby, which is allowed. But do you think about our allies like Canada when you think about securing these supplies? And how do you think about Canada if you do? A thousand percent, Scotty. And actually, I was going to say in the introduction, we are no longer called Securing America's Future Energy. We are actually just our acronym SAFE now. And it is to reflect that we don't think that the United States can do this all on our own. Uh, we think that we need to work with our allies, especially Canada, uh, who, who, you know, we work with very closely on these issues. But we think about it in terms of concentric circles. You know, domestically, of course, we need to build up capacity. But within North America, more writ large, you know, we need to work together. And then even bigger than that, all of our allies and like-minded countries around the world as well. Yeah. And you don't want to be called SNAFE. That doesn't work. And you you got to take into consideration other allies besides North America. SNAFE would be securing North America's energy. Anyway, Chris Sands, bring us back to the street. (laughs) Bring you back to the street. Well, I, I guess I wanted to ask if that's all right, Abigail, a little about how we get critical minerals to our energy and our technology. Uh, because we've been talking about critical minerals for a long time uh, now, and it sounds very important and mysterious, but what minerals are we talking about and how does that relate to the types of energy that we're planning for in the future? Well, Chris, we at SAFE believe that we are transitioning from a fossil fuel-based economy to a minerals-based economy. And it's a little bit of a mining talking point, but I like to sort of point this out that if you just take a look around you, everything that you see has either been mined or grown. So minerals aren't just used for everything that we're going to need to electrify. They're used in our everyday lives from, you know, the, the water glass and the coffee mug that you drink out of to the windows. And, you know, of course, our computers and our laptops, everybody likes to talk about. Um, but it but it really is everything. But uh, electric vehicles and the push, the greater attention on these critical minerals are such a focus because our world is becoming more electrified. Everything from, you know, satellites and, you know, the way that we conduct military operations to the ways that we communicate and, yes, transportation and the ways we travel are increasingly done at the push of a button. And even though that is such an outwardly rote operation, the technology that goes into our ability to do things in this sort of electric and connected way all runs on the unique physical and chemical properties of mineral materials. 
For electric vehicles, uh, right now, the current chemistry that people are so focused on are these lithium ion batteries that are traditionally using um, nickel, manganese, and cobalt cathode chemistries with um, graphite and some copper anode chemistries. So um, those are really some the key minerals on the top of people's minds just because, you know, Canada, the United States, the EU, China, everyone is committing these at the government level to sort of push for these new EV and zero emission vehicle commitments. But also we're seeing from industry a huge push, you know, billions of dollars being invested in the economy to transition to these zero emission vehicles. And they're all going to need minerals. Absolutely. And one other thing that I've heard is related, and I guess it's adjacent to the question of energy, is silicon for silicon chips. Aren't we facing a silicon chip crisis as well because we need chips for everything? So silica is one of the most crustally abundant uh, minerals in the Earth's crust. But, you know, the unique purity of silica that you need as well uh, is definitely something that is of concern. Um, more of concern, actually, in the semiconductor supply chain right now is the flow of neon, uh, something that you need in the instrumentation to create the chips themselves. And Ukraine actually is one of the major sources for that neon. But but yes, everything from germanium and gallium and, you know, all sorts of small trace amounts of these weird, you know, pull out your periodic table, Chris, and, and you know, you're going to need all of it. When I was thinking back to about trade back in the 80s and 90s, we were trying to get rid of tariff barriers because we wanted to have the private sector come up with the most efficient way to structure production so they could get the cost down. And we were competing with China and low wage labor. So we had to find ways through logistics and so forth to be uh, able to be competitive. But so one of the things I wanted to put to you, because I think a lot of our listeners will start with that same premise, is economic efficiency. Let the market decide. But to secure our future energy, reshoring and organizing things for national security reasons may mean that you're not going with the lowest cost bidder. Maybe you're doing something with Canada or with Mexico. Can you walk me through what justifies the deviation from what would economically be the most efficient? and how the, pri how the private sector is going to react to things like that. Are they on board for the national security component of it, or are we uh, going to be fighting about this in the years to come? Critical mineral and battery supply chains, Chris, are imperative for our national security. As I mentioned just before, you know, it's our, our governments, our industry, our consumers, you know, society is pushing for us to increasingly electrify. As we transition to this minerals-based economy, the country or countries that are able to efficiently and effectively secure the resources to get these materials will have an advantage in the coming next industrial revolution for the most part. So we're not talking about critical minerals just to say mine may be mine and for the sake of getting the raw material resources. Instead, it really is this race to secure the downstream sectors, the innovation and expertise that will flow from our ability to get those mineral materials. And um, to put a finer point on it, uh, the U.S. auto market, the U.S. auto sector is incredibly important to the American economy, but also, you know, the EU economy. We work very closely with Canada, um, cross-border trade uh, for our automotive sector as well, different components and parts. Mm -hmm. And the automotive sector in the United States contributes over a trillion dollars to our economy each year. It contributes over 5% to our GDP, either directly or indirectly, and fuels millions of jobs, both on our side and on your side of the border. And people always say, um, you know, China, what, are they going to cut off our supply of cobalt? 
And I say, no, China's not going to cut off our supply of cobalt because the United States does not process cobalt. Canada actually, though, is number three right. in the world yeah. for processing cobalt, but they're not going to cut off the U.S. supply because we don't we don't uh, process cobalt. But what they would cut off, whether nefariously or not, because let's get real, they are the largest market for electric vehicles right, right. now. They could yeah. very rightly say, oh, I'm sorry, Ford and GM, like we're not going to send you batteries for your cars because we really need those batteries. But you know what, United States and Canada, we will send you cars instead. And then what happens to our automotive sector? Then what happens to all those jobs that rely on that automotive sector? So it's critically important that the United States and Canada work together to build up that whole everything upstream of the auto assembly to make sure that nothing could be cut off, as I said, nefariously or not. Well, it's so interesting the way you put it and so clear. I, we're going to take a little break here, but when we come back, I want to I want to hear a little bit more from you, Abby, about the uh, what's called the Inflation Reduction Act, but it's really a carbon transition uh, historic investment. And I also want to talk about the tension between minerals developers, and you talk about the minerals-based economy and environmentalists who want to leave everything in the ground. Um, And sometimes they have good reason, actually. So when we come back, let's, let's take on those two really easy, small issues. Are you red, white, and blue, or just red and white? Beaver or bald eagle? Ryan Reynolds or JLo? Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already. That's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, how about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-U.S. relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. Similarly, uh, people are realizing that this extraordinary uh, transformation that's going on in our economy towards electric vehicles, towards more uh, high-tech, advanced solutions on everything we do is going to require access to critical minerals and rare earth elements uh, that to this point have been dominated by China as a, as a uh, uh, somewhat uh, challenging partner at the best of times. And that's why the world is looking to Canada, because Canada has incredible amounts of uh, the critical minerals and the rare earth elements that the world needs. But on top of just having the elements, we have uh, an incredibly- Hi, welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. My name is Christopher Sands and I'm here with Scotty Greenwood and we're chatting with Abigail Wolf, who's with SAFE, which used to mean securing America's future energy and is now focused on energy critical minerals and the other things that we need to make a transition in our economy to clean technology. I think I hogged the last segment, uh, Scotty. So the next question is yours. Thanks, Chris. Well, two questions really, and, and we'll start with the first one. Abby, you talk about... Uh, I th- I'm learning a lot in this conversation. You talk about the, how reliant we are on critical minerals and, and what could happen if we don't have the ability in the United States to produce, for example, batteries for electric vehicles. You know, if we suddenly were reliant on China um, and China decided to mess with our economy, which they've done in the past and could do again. Does, 
what role does do you see um, the Inflation Reduction Act, as it's known, um, playing? And and maybe uh, let's not talk. Let, let's talk about a little bit about what that act is, because that name doesn't really do justice to. Um, everything it does, I think. So maybe maybe we could start with that, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, The Inflation Reduction Act, or as a lot of people in Washington, D.C., and I think sort of in the media like to refer to it as sort of like, you know, well, I don't know. Well, the reincarnation of Build Back Better. Some people call it Build Back Better Mansion. Some people call it the Climate (laughs) Bill. Right. Um, But the, the key parts in the Inflation Reduction Act that are so critical to the critical minerals conversation are the provisions on the uh, clean vehicle tax credit. That's the 30D clean vehicle tax credit. But there's also a 45X production tax credit and a re-upping of this uh, 48C, a clean manufacturing investment tax credit as well. And those are sections of the legislation that you're referring to, The literally the paragraph number and letter. Yeah, just so people know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Hard to get out of my DC bubble. No, it's good. It's good. Um, so, so in particular, uh, people are a bit they're running around a bit like their hair is on fire because of this uh, 30D clean vehicle tax credit because there are new mineral and battery sourcing provisions uh, tied to that electric vehicle tax credit, as well as a new foreign entity of concern provision, which essentially says that any mineral or materials or battery component parts coming from a foreign entity of concern, which means in layman's terms, pretty much China, Russia, Iran, and North yep. Korea uh, cannot be in your supply chain for minerals starting in 2024 or for batteries starting in 2025. Um, and for the other provisions for minerals, you know, starting in December, essentially, when the IRS is expected to come out with its implementation draft guidance, no more than 40% of the value of your minerals can uh uh, excuse me, at least 40% of the value of your minerals have to come from either the United States or a country with which we have a free trade agreement, of which Canada is one of those. Right, right. And, and for batteries, uh, at least 50% has to come from North America. So, you know, thankfully, also, too, we can include Canada happily within that as well. But those, you know, those provisions are causing alarm bells around the world right now. And people are rushing to create compliant supply streams uh, to get that EV tax credit. Abigail, I I wanted to jump in on one point there because I read, I think, in one of the papers that the bill also allows that if you recycle an automotive battery, that it can become 100 percent North American, even though the original critical minerals may have come by way of China or one of those other countries on the bad list. Is that right? That's absolutely correct, Chris. Yes, thank you. And you would have to do that, actually. You'd have to have some considerations because what you just outlined, Abby, is really ambitious when you think about 80% of the world's critical minerals today are processed by an entity that, according to the new law, we can't, you know, we can't get, we can't have in our supply chain anymore. So it you know, it follows that the policymakers would would invest a lot of money because there's no obvious way to do it. the market isn't gonna isn't gonna do this by itself without without some pretty strong incentives, right? And, and that's essentially what we had been hearing from you know automotive manufacturers and others that you know they needed some sort of an incentive to you know diversify into some of these other supply areas that are frankly a little bit more expensive to source from and also. 
uh, I think that it's a bit of a wake-up call to downstream sectors, not just the automotive sector, because again, it's it's that that's the leading indicator right now. But you know, everything from aerospace and defense as well. Um, sure. Tons, yeah. Tons of Republican bills talking about where you're getting your rare earth elements from that go into you know precision guided munitions and you know. Your that's earth. right. Yeah. Let's talk about the other piece of this that I think is actually really hard. If you assume that everybody wants to prevent climate change as much as possible and that we need to transition off car- of carbon, you need critical minerals to do that because of EVs, because of solar cells, etc. But the tension is that digging them up out of the ground and and converting them into something that is useful in the manufacturing process can be very toxic business. And it can be very, very expensive to do it in a way that is environmentally uh, neutral. Uh, and and it's, it's probably never going to be environmentally positive. So how do we have a conversation with environmentalists, um, activists who want to stop every project and the need to transition to some things that are, it's it's expensive and hard to do it properly. And there will be disruption to the natural environment just, just by definition. How do you deal with that? It's incredibly important to engage with these groups. Number one, I think that it's important to have, you know, an end of the spectrum that is keeping your feet to the fire, so to speak. There are always, there's always room for improvement, always ways that we can be doing things better. And it's good that we exist in countries in Canada and in the United States where we have active civil society participation and transparency in media where we can say when something is going wrong and needs to be fixed and can be fixed. And there are, you know, we have a a legal system where, where, you know, in the United States, maybe it's used a little bit too much, but, you know, can be used as a course of redress for people um, and rightly so. But at the same time, those groups, and I think they are beginning to recognize and understand that we will eventually have to put some shovels in the ground and we will, there is a material intensity that comes along with trying to achieve the climate goals that they've been pushing for for a long time. It's I, I studied geology. It's something that I've understood uh, for quite some time. And, you know, in looking through different green groups, you know, policy plans, you know, you see the bullet, like electrify everything by 2035 and, you know, little old me would go up to them starting a decade ago and say, you know, do you know what that entails? Yeah. So working with these groups is going to be essential. And, and as I said, there are things that we can do to improve and we should do to improve because social license to social, social acceptance to operate isn't just an issue in the United States or even in Canada. It's an issue around the world. And so, you know, better incorporating more meaningful community engagement is something that we're, we know will help to improve the social acceptance of mining. Um, in the United States, we only have environmental impact assessments. In Canada, there are environmental and social impact assessments. Um, and we also think that you know, working together with Canada, and we do in this joint action, in this joint action plan uh, that we're working on with Canada that was signed in 2020 to promote um, better environmental, social, and governance um, actions within the critical mining sector. And at SAFE, we see that as being the most important thing tied with transparency, because as we've been talking about in this conversation, There's a dangerous concentration in supply chains. It's incredibly difficult to diversify away from those concentrations. We think that it's difficult to diversify away because it is very difficult to compete on cost. We think 
we think it is difficult to compete on cost because where we are getting things from currently, uh, the environment is ostensibly being degraded or workers are being exploited. And so this is why we can't just rely on the market to say, you know, oh, it's just cheaper to do it over here because we don't exist on a level playing field where everybody operates by the same rules. So instead, the United States, Canada, EU, countries around the world that share these same values for high standards should be working together to say, and, and I mean, I think this is especially relevant for the United States, Canada, and, and the European Union, you know, some of the largest economic and purchasing powerhouses for a lot of this tech-driven, mineral-intensive stuff to say, we're only going to import, we're only going to use minerals that have been mined with high standards and community involvement. Um, and that way, and if you have transparency, some sort of tracking and traceability platform of which there are many, some great ones in Canada, I know there's Optel um, in Quebec, but also, you know, Circular, uh, who we partner with out of the UK, there's Everledger in Australia, um, to, to know that, you know, where your minerals are coming from. And also that's what the IRA does as well. It's the first step in that transparency, because you can't you can't layer on top values onto your supply chain until you know where your stuff is coming from. Yeah, thanks for that. And just one more question for me on that. You you just listed off a number of companies that are that are involved in transparency. Is there an international agreement about what transparency and tracing looks like? And is there an ability to comply with it? I mean, when you think about in, in another context, you think about publicly traded companies and will the Securities and Exchange Commission require public companies to disclose what their climate impact is? How do they do that? As a corporate director myself, that's a big question, right? How, what is your obligation and how do you measure it? And who do you trust to measure it? Like, can you hire you know, one of these companies and be sure that if they give you the stamp of approval, that it's, um, that it's going to be accepted. So, so Scotty, you invoked the the SEC in, in 2012, the SEC passed uh, section 1502 of the Dodd-Frank legislation here in the United States, which specifically addresses transparency when it comes to the three TG metals, tin, tungsten, tantalum, and gold, when they are sourced from conflict-affected regions. And so with that ruling, any company, you know, from Sony to, you know, a Ford or GM has to say, if disclose, if any of the minerals that they're using come from one of these high-risk conflict regions, essentially in, a, in an attempt to make sure that any mining wasn't going to fuel, you know, um, like uh, warlords in those regions. But, you know, the United States... I would say until the passage of IRA was essentially stuck in 2012. Whereas I know the European Union had taken those SEC guidelines and implemented them. Um, actually, I think they went into effect in January of 2021 there, but then they've, they've gone beyond them and they have their new battery due diligence regulations that are making their way through the European Parliament right now. So um, it's it's something where there's not an internationally agreed upon standard of like what this transparency looks like, 
but we're all referring back to each other and and other countries are rightfully, you know, taking it beyond to see what else needs to be done. I think that, you know, the US and Canada uh, can do well to work together on establishing some transparency guidelines. And I know that the State Department currently has their um, mineral security partnership where they're doing essentially some portions of that. They're trying to define responsible mining among this group of countries, and they're trying to funnel capital to responsible mineral deposits. Um, I would take that to the next step and say that the MSP should really also be focusing on how to funnel capital jointly between all of these responsible actors to mineral processing facilities. Absolutely. Yes. And it's more expensive. It's more expensive, harder to do, toxic. Yep. We'll get, we're coming to the end here, Chris, or to the, to the uh, home stretch, but I, I'm sure, you, I'm sure you should jump in here with maybe one more question. <laughs> I wanted to bring it back a little bit to the street here. And here on Canusa Street, we talk about the Canadians and the Americans. And I, I know having been around Washington that talk about critical minerals and national security and great power competition and decoupling from China has been with us for a while. And it certainly was enunciated by the previous administration, the Trump administration. But from the Canadian side, they heard all sorts of things like, we're going to put national security tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum, which didn't seem fair to them, given that they're a big ally of ours. Can you talk a little bit about what we expect in the best case from our Canadian partners? I mean, what should they be thinking about and prepared to do? If they are good partners, will they find that their steel and aluminum and other things are more respected? Or is this just another kind of American protectionism? I think they're feeling a little wounded here, uh, albeit not by this administration. I completely understand. And in this day and age, there's no room for that kind of protectionism. Um, the United States and Canada, and as I keep mentioning, you know, all of our other allies here in the space need to be working together to secure these supply chains. We all are facing the exact same challenge that the mineral supply chains are incredibly concentrated, you know, in one place. And whether it's, again, through the pandemic, you know, supply chain showing that you really don't <laughs> want to just be getting your PPE from one place and we all need to be, you know, sourcing these things or have enough somehow. Um, you know, uh, I, I think there's also a lot more emphasis on, you know, treating Canada and I don't know, as like the 51st state. And I know maybe Canadians <laughs> don't like when they hear that. I, I, I probably wouldn't like it if I were Canadian. But, but you know, we have our, our NTIB, the National Technology Industrial Base, where we treat Canada essentially as a domestic source. That has been, you know, invoked a number of times in trying to solve critical mineral supply chains. We have the new Defense Production Act, the DPA Title III, pot of money that's just been released that, you know, Canadians also have access to. Um, I'm very sensitive to the fact that Canadians and also Australians don't want to just be, you know, like the world's quarries, as they say. And they also yeah. want, you know, more of the downstream investment as well, which I think is completely fair. And I also think that, you know, in this transition, there's going to be more than enough work that needs to be done so that it can be diversified among us. Excellent. I really appreciate that. I think that's something Canadians will want to hear. And, and maybe as a connection to that, are we going to have ITARs problems uh, on some of the processing technologies and so forth? Because I know maybe if we're building a new semiconductor manufacturing sites or forges or foundries or whatever they're called, that we're going to start fighting that way with the Canadians as well. And before you answer that, Abby, we're going to define ITARs for our listeners because that's a Washington word. Oh, sorry, Scotty. Uh, that's the it, International Trade in arms regulations that limit technology transfer of very sensitive material for military use. And for a while, it was pretty much tanks and planes, uh, nuclear weapons, that sort of thing. 
But I remember after 9-11, there were a lot of dual-use technologies that got caught under those international trade in-arms regulations. So uh, anyway, back to you, Abby. What do you think? You are bringing me back to my NASA days, Chris. When I was, I, I haven't heard the word ITAR in a really long time. Oh, right. <laughs> so thank you for defining that for me as well. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I would just say that that is an incredibly important point to bring up. It's something that I think I would think that the U.S.-Canada Joint Action Plan would and should be seriously addressing. Um, I know that there are a lot of high-level sort of proclamations with that, talking about collaboration, you know, sharing information and data. And so... Um, increased attention on ensuring that any important information does not get caught in that ITAR net, I think is an excellent point. Before we let you go, Abby, is there is there something that you think you want to, that we haven't talked enough about that you think it's important to get across to our listeners before we let you go? I think that, you know, I'm I'm just overall really happy that the United States has such a great partner and ally in Canada to be working on this. I think that the Canadians, uh, you know, the Quebecois sort of in particular, have been well ahead thinking about how they should be creating sustainable battery supply chains. Uh, we should be working with you on, you know, cleaning up our grid by using, you know, leveraging your great hydroelectricity that you have as well. Um, but just the the strategy and the importance that the Canadians have placed on this issue, I think, is something that is helping to keep a focus on it in America. Because, you know, we can't, I don't know, it's a friendly, you know, competition thing, but also working together thing. And I think that increased collaboration is going to be so important going forward. Totally agree with you. And as, and as you guys have often said, hopefully we are creating a race to the top here uh, in terms of the future of how we produce uh, energy for, for everybody lives. So um, with that, Abby Wolf from SAFE, you are a rock star and a rock scientist. And I am so delighted to, that we've had a chance to visit here. I hope we can have you back um, in the future as, as things unfold with Canada, United States and the world and these developments. And um, it's just been a pleasure. It was great to have you. And I knew immediately that you were no longer working for NASA when you said everything around you was either grown or mined, because that told me you were down to earth. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Chris, I, I learned a lot. Uh, from from you uh, and today I learned a lot also from Abby she's uh, she's doing important work and safe is an, an organization that if our listeners haven't heard of it uh, it is quite influential in Washington it's it's well it's a well-funded NGO if you will um, thought leadership and they uh, you know influenced big parts of that legislation that she talked about, the carbon transition legislation. So uh, she, she's a, a real expert and and and, uh, and SAFE is a good organization to know about. And I'm not, I'm not sure it's well appreciated in Canada, even though Robbie Diamond, their founder, is happens to be Canadian. I know. There's so many organizations doing work like this. But what I like about SAFE and Abby represented this in spades is their ability to take the complexity of a policy issue that really it involves really reorganizing our entire economy on very different lines, and it's going to cost a ton of money and it's going to require coordination internationally. So with all that level of complexity, it's really important to have someone who can walk you through and help you to understand the merits of it. Why are we doing this this way? If it has costs, what are the benefits? And as you raised with her, if we're going to have to make some decisions, 
how does the greater good for the environment have to be weighed against localized disruption or problems? How do you put all this into proportion? I, I think she did that so well. Just great to have her here on Canusa Street. I agree completely. And always great to see you, my friend. It's always great to see you too. And stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.